New Testament lesson is found in Romans 6. We are reading verses 1 through 14 this morning. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we do gather around your word this morning, we hear impressive promises of all that our Lord Jesus' death and resurrection accomplishes on our behalf. We ask now that your spirit would give us understanding that you will speak, for your servants are listening. Amen. It was during my first year of seminary. It was not necessarily a spiritual high-water mark. I found myself struggling with the academic side of studying theology and then my own personal life in my first couple of years of marriage, finding myself now living with a private investigator uh, inside of my own apartment. And it was uncomfortable. Sin seemed to abound and abound and continue to flourish uh, all around me. And I remember growing particularly discouraged in my spiritual life, just not quite understanding what God was doing and what I was supposed to do about it. And one night, as was my habit from 8 to 10, Melissa prepared her lesson plans and I would go and do some of my reading. And I was reading for an ethics class that was not particularly that exciting. It was a really great class, but it was not that exciting. And I had a chapter to read out of John Murray's book called The Principles of Conduct. That didn't sound exciting. So here I was reading the principles of conduct somewhere around 9.30 at night, and I'm reading a chapter entitled The Dynamic. And it was a chapter about how God has given us grace that will change us and transform us. And so here I am, not excited about reading a book called The Principles of Conduct for my ethics class, not excited about my spiritual life, uh, as I just feel like I'm dying and withering on the vine in seminary. And it was one of those electric nights, though, where God just meets you. And it was like a bolt out of the blue, out of nowhere, where I was struck. 
realizing that I was missing some things in very severe ways and that it was warping the way that I was understanding the Christian life. And here on these dull, dry pages of the principles of conduct, I was seeing John Murray explicate a passage from Scripture, Romans 6, and bring it to life in a way that I'd never understood it before. And it struck me just what was going on, what was deeply at the heart of my own spiritual struggles. And the bottom line is is that I was asking this question, how do I change? How do I really experience spiritual transformation? And when we're honest with ourselves, our spiritual growth or our lack thereof is often a deep source of discouragement for us. Is that we've taken a run at making some changes and sometimes we have made some progress and then there are times where we just seem to completely fail. And we can grow extremely discouraged. We get stuck. And at times it feels like we're trying to get traction inside of a stainless steel tube. And we just continue to slide and we don't know what to do. We don't know how to talk about it. We're scared to confess it. And in those moments, there tend to be two types of responses that come to us, that seem natural to us. And the first is when some people feel like they're struggling, they're going to gravitate towards rules. They're going to set up all kinds of rules to control particularly certain types of behaviors that they want to manage. And so to feel good about themselves and what they would deem to be a failing spiritual life is they'll give give themselves a set of rules that they can keep. It's a way to placate. It's a way to ameliorate the frustration of feeling like we're failing. That's one response. Second response is simply to read Romans 5, not deal with Romans 6, and say, you know what? It's just all about grace, which is forgiveness. And so God justifies us. We are right with Him. And so the rest is really just gravy. We don't need to do anything about anything. That this whole talk of obedience and trying to please God, that that's all just a bunch of baloney because we can't do anything and everybody is just a Pharisee. That's a second kind of common response. But the thing is, is that Paul asks a question at the beginning of Romans 6. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He knew that it was a natural question that would arise from his gospel preaching. He has just said that when sin increased, grace superabounded. That the grace of God is big and free and that it cancels out our sins. It's wonderful. It is a truth to get lost in. But Paul also will include inside of that grace not just forgiveness. As rich and full and good as God's forgiveness is, he says that grace is also a power. That grace intersects our lives and not only removes sin's guilt, but it also breaks sin's power. And that night as I was reading John Murray, it was as if I had heard that phrase for the very first time. That the Gospel, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, was a power that could enter into my life and I was set free from the control and tyranny of sin. Something that I had to ask myself. Do I really believe that? And the thing is, is that oftentimes when it comes to spiritual growth, 
we think it is about our accomplishment. We think that there are lots of things to do. And for people who want to keep rules and also for people who just give up, this is the shared assumption. That it is just about us being left on our own. But here's the important question to ask. Is what if transformation and change is not about your accomplishment at all? What if your transformation and change, your spiritual growth, actually relies upon the accomplishment of another? And this is what Paul is laboring to say in Romans 6. Is that our spiritual transformation and change is completely reliant upon Jesus and sharing in His death and resurrection. And so the biggest question for us is how does it work? And this is our first point. The way that it works is that through baptism, we share in Jesus' death and resurrection. What is true of Jesus becomes true of us. Follow with me in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who, were baptized, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And friends, that night that I was reading this passage, I could hardly believe it. That it dawned on me that I just skipped over this chapter. It seemed in the Bible that what Paul was saying is that through baptism, I was united to Jesus in His death. And through that same baptism, I was united to Jesus' resurrected life. That the resurrection in some way was breaking into my old, dead, hard, cold heart. And it was offering a freedom to me that I could experience and know. And so Paul asked the question, don't you know? Don't you assume? Don't you experience that? And what is true of Jesus is true of us. His death becomes our death. His resurrection, our resurrection. Now as a kid, when I was in the fifth grade, W.H. Robinson Elementary School, we had a massive kickball tournament every year. The kickball tournament was always a big field day. Everybody was off of class for the day. My class was beaten on the first, uh, first game of the tournament. And so we were on the bleachers for most of the day just getting sunburned. And, um, and then there were a couple of other teams, and the team that beat us went all the way to the final game. They had the one kid in, uh, in, the, in the grade who was you know two heads taller than everybody. He may have been held back a couple of times. Um, I'm not sure. But he could crush the ball, you know, and he could pitch faster than anybody. And, you know, and he was just dominating the whole field. And they had destroyed us. And so he gets to the final game, and they lose. And, um, and out of our own pride, we were probably celebrating that loss a little bit. We were walking back from the, from the fields to the building, I remember, and I was celebrating that loss along with some friends. And for some reason, the big bully who was two heads taller than everyone else, who was like Goliath in my mind, heard me celebrating their loss. And I've always wondered, but God always seems to work this way in my life. And I was thinking, as he then marched up to me and pushed me down, I'm thinking, why? You know, why didn't you hear them? You know, we were, we were all in this together. 
And, uh, and so suddenly he's telling me that after school, I better watch it on my way to the bus. And uh, I knew what that meant. You know, I was about to be destroyed uh, <laughs> on my way to the bus. And I wanted to get the bus 238 faster than anybody, you know. And so walking back, um, uh, some friends start talking and they are, of course, selling me out and saying, yeah, well, you shouldn't have talked about it, acting like they hadn't done it. And... <laughs> And so then, uh, walking back, uh, there was a, a young guy who was the best athlete in the grade. Um, he was a young African-American guy who I was friends with. His name was Derek Wooten. And Derek was also one of those very early matures, and so he's very strong. He was well-built. And he said, he was on the victorious team, by the way, and he said, you know what? You're safe. You walk with me to the bus. So all of a sudden, I had a new spring in my step as I was going to bus 238 after school because Derek Wooten was walking in front of me. And Derek had proclaimed that I was his protectorate. Now, I don't quite know why, but he didn't really like the bully either. And so I just drafted right behind Derek to bus 238. I got on, and then, of course, as, as elementary school goes, it was forgotten the next day. But the principle just being that I was protected because I was connected to Derek Wooten. You know, this mighty force in our grade, this terror that no one wanted to fight, not even the bully himself, didn't want to mess with Derek Wooten. And friends, so what was true of Derek had become true of me that day, not because I had done anything. I was just a shriveling wimp, okay, about to get destroyed. But I was connected to a victorious hero named Derek, and nobody was going to touch me. And friends, that is what happens to us through baptism. We're united to Jesus, the victorious King. His death becomes our death. It's accomplished for us. His life becomes our life. It's accomplished for us. And we are given this status now. And so it's all done on our behalf. And so the question becomes, what happens to us? That when we share in Jesus' death and we now share in His life, what does it mean? So what? And Paul spells this out in verse 5 and 6 and 7. Follow along with me. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And Paul speaks here of a definitive break. There is a definitive break with what he calls the old self. And so it's appropriate to ask, what is that? What is he referring to? And the old self, it's the same kind of thing that he was referring to in Romans 5 where he talked about being in Adam under the control and dominion of sin and death. And so what Paul says is that when we share in Jesus' death and when we share in His resurrection now is that the old self has been crucified. That it dies with Jesus. Please note that this is not a process. Paul uses the past tense. Was crucified. It's happened. It is in the past. It's behind us. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. 
And then he who has died has been set free from sin. And friends, what we've been set free from is the sovereignty of sin, from its tyranny, from its rule over us. We've been transferred out of one country into another where we're now set free for something else. Now, many people will object when they hear that. It's a simple enough concept, but they'll just simply say, I'm not convinced that the old man is dead. Experientially, I'm not convinced that the old man is dead. But friends, here's the thing, is that this is not an experiential argument. Paul is simply proclaiming something that has happened to you if you are in Christ. This is something positional. It's not something that you decided. It's something that has taken place that God has afflicted you with. Okay, He has done this to you. That you've been severed from your old self that was under the tyranny and captivity of sin. And friends, when we say that no, our old man is still alive, do you know what it's like saying? It's like saying Jesus is still in the grave. Paul's entire argument is no, you have been set free because Jesus is not in the grave. You have been made new to walk in newness of life because He is alive. And because He is alive, there is something now different for you. You've been granted new position. Several years ago, preaching a similar sermon to this on Colossians 2, a young guy in my congregation came to me and he was completely kind of swallowed up in sin. There were some particular sexual sins that were just naming him and owning him and discouraging him, and he felt like there was no hope. And so he wrote an email just to give the litany of what was going on in his life. And he said, Chuck, I can understand clearly enough what you're saying. That united to Jesus, I'm dead to sin. That I share in resurrection life. That something has happened to me that's outside of my control. It's not my choice. It's what God has assigned to me. There's something positional about it. But this was his question. He asked two in an email. He said, if this is true, how do I understand sin's presence in my life? Because it's ongoing. And friends, that's an important question. If we're dead to sin then why is sin still an ongoing presence that plays itself out in our lives that we deal with over and over and over? I want you to note something in verse 12. Because Paul does not say that sin's presence has been eradicated. What he says is that sin's power has been defeated. Sin will remain, but its reign will not. That's the proclamation of this passage. So in verse 12, Paul gives a command. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. But do you understand what he's acknowledging? When he commands us not to present our members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, he's recognizing that sin is very much a part of our ongoing existence. But what he is arguing is that sin's reign has been broken. Therefore, do not submit yourself to that reign. God has done something that you are to appropriate that has set you free. Sin's power has been destroyed. We're commanded not to let it reign because we have been liberated from its rule. 
March 2013, the United States invaded the nation of Iraq. It was only a few short days later, and it was clear that Saddam Hussein was no longer ruling the nation of Iraq. It was clear to the world he had disappeared and was hiding. The thing is, is that as we then went on a manhunt for Saddam Hussein, there was one thing clear, or two things clear. He was not ruling the nation, but he still exercised a tremendous amount of influence. People were scared to death of Saddam Hussein. Around his hometown of Tikrit, as we looked and searched for him, people would say nothing about where he was. They were clearly scared. They knew his power and his influence in the past, and they still cowered beneath it. In December of that year, he was captured. He was found hiding in a hole. And friends, this is the same. It's a parable of our own existence. That in Jesus, when we are brought into Him, when we're baptized into Him, something definitive happens to us. There is a break in the reign of sin, but its presence is still with us. It's still ongoing. Its influence is still exerted upon us. And one day, when Jesus returns to renew all things, it will finally be destroyed and removed. That we will no longer cower under it. That we won't live in fear of it. But presently, we are still able to submit ourselves to it. And that's the tragedy of our existence. And so when we hear that we've been set free from sin, it doesn't mean that we're now to live perfect lives and that our lives will just be easy and sin will no longer be there. We've been set free from the rule of sin. And my friend's second question was important as well. Perhaps more important. He just said, Chuck, how do I experience this? In the middle of all my sins, in the middle of all my failures, how do I experience what it means to be dead to the controlling power of sin? To be dead to the old self? And verse 11 is the key point. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is that we are to be who we are in Christ. Consider yourselves. It's the same word that we translate in chapter 4 as reckon or count. Count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Because how? what position has God given us? He counts us alive. He has given us this new position as cut off from the old man. And so how are we to reckon ourselves in that same way? And friends, this is where spiritual growth and progress, the journey, is one of faith. Because this is an activity of faith to consider yourselves this way. Because is it the way that you feel? No. Oftentimes we, we feel under the weight of our sins and crushed by them. And God calls us to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ that we are to be and we are to walk in the way and the direction of what God has declared about us. That He set us free from sin, therefore we are not to submit ourselves to its reign. That we're free now to do so. We are alive, not dead. This is what God proclaims about us. Marvelous truth. 
And that to submit ourselves to the reign of sin now, it's possible, but it's just not logical. That you've been set free. The tyrant has been removed. Why would you continue to give yourself to Him? Why would you continue to live in fear and cower under His domination? That He's not a good master is what Paul will go on to say in Romans 6, that He pays poor wages. And friends, what we need to do is learn to argue with ourselves in the same way that the psalmist does in Psalm 42. Did you hear the dialogue in Psalm 42? In his depression and despair, he says, why are you so despairing, O my soul? Hope in God. My salvation and my God. And friends, we need to learn to argue that way, to have that kind of dialogue with ourselves out of this passage. That when we feel the incredible weight of our sins, its guilt and its power overwhelming us, that we need to argue and say, no, my soul, consider yourself dead to sin. God, give me grace to consider myself dead to it. Because I don't believe that. That's not in my experience right now. But I believe that the more true thing is what you say and not what I feel. And that's the biggest question for us in our growth. Is will we in faith take up what God says is true? Will we walk into what He says we are? Or will we rather relax into our feelings and experience and collapse further and further in upon ourselves? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in preaching this passage, he was an English pastor at Westminster Chapel, he says this, if I fall into sin, as I do, it's simply because I don't realize who I am. And friends, when we turn into sin and submit ourselves to its reign, it's a failure to simply recognize who we are now in Christ. That we've been cut off from that. That we've been given this wonderful privilege now to walk in newness of life free from the dominion and control, alive now with Christ. And so God can command us to let not sin therefore reign because He has given us the grace to now walk free from that reign. Augustine would say it like this over and over throughout his ministry. Command what you will, O God, but give what you command. And God gives you everything that He commands. He tells you not to submit yourselves to sin, so He breaks the power of sin over us. And so now we can present ourselves to Him and our instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. This is the grace of God. It is ours to appropriate it, to apply it, to bring it into action. And it's by one simple act of faith. As a kid, my grandparents lived in Henderson, North Carolina. It was about two hours away from where I grew up. And so we would drive up for the day and visit them. And uh, there was a liturgy to our leaving in the afternoon. Okay, My sister always got nauseous. And then we would back out of the driveway with the trash bags strapped to the Caprice Classic back seat. And then we would all roll down the windows and my grandfather would yell, remember who you are. And then we would lean out the window because nobody wore seatbelts then. And, uh, and we would yell, no, you remember who you are. And then it would keep going you know, as we drove off around the corner. But remember 
who you are. This is the family chant. And friends, that's what Paul is screaming at you this morning. Remember who you are. Remember your identity in Christ and all that God has done for you in Him. And then lean into and live that out. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Because in Christ, that's who you are. Reckon yourself that way. Argue yourself into that position. And friends, that's the true hope for change and spiritual growth because it relies upon another. It doesn't leave you to yourself. 